0: Welcome to the Mormon marriages podcast. I am Angeline Bagley
1: and I am Nate Bagley
0: as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints We believe that the most important thing in life is your family and the backbone of your family is your marriage
1: So on this podcast, we talk with couples from the church who provide amazing insights into what it takes to create a marriage that will make you look forward to eternity
0: It would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show, uh, review it on iTunes, and reach out to us if you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas to make it even better.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the podcast.
0: Yes, welcome.
1: We told you we had a special episode coming out soon.
0: Bonus episode.
1: Today's the day.
0: Here it is. What
1: is it, Ange?
0: So, many of you may know Jennifer Finlayson Fife.
1: She's been on the show before. She's been
0: on our show. It was our most popular episode by far. And she has been doing a segment called Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist on the Rational Faith podcast. And that um, segment now has a new home. It's our home and it's ours and we're So every so, so often we're going to
1: give you a bonus episode featuring Jennifer Finlayson Fife asking, answering some of your questions.
0: Right. So if you want to ask a question, you go to mormonmarriages.com/ask and it's anonymous and um, It's awesome. Yeah, it's great.
1: So just as a heads up, this interview is not meant to replace therapy. Right. Therapy um, is a really amazing experience where you get to sit down with a professional mental health clinician like Jennifer, and you get to have a conversation and you get to ask questions and dive deep. And this is just more of an education. It's insights that Jennifer um, is offering Mm -hmm. in a non-therapy setting. Right to help us all navigate different um, struggles and different conflict or I don't know obstacles that we face in our in our sexual lives so there's a
0: legal disclaimer that we have posted in the show notes yep Um, you can
1: read up on that if you want to know more Um, but essentially we just wanted you to know that this interview does not replace therapy
0: yep and we'll tag that on to every one of these episodes
1: yep So okay
0: we hope you enjoy
1: (laughs) as always All right, welcome to the podcast, Jennifer.
2: Thank you, so excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. We've
1: been looking forward to this ever since I got that message from you saying, hey, uh, would you like to maybe think about doing this? And now here we are. Well, I guess we kind of messaged each, it was, it was a it was, however it happened, it was magical. (laughs) Um, So before we dive in, uh, I, I know that in past, so we're just going to basically pick up, so for everybody who's listening, if you haven't listened to past episodes of Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist, there have been several published um, on a different podcast called Rational Fates. Mm-hmm. And do you remember the exact, I can't rem- remember off the top of my head the number of episodes you've done? Uh,
2: 26 episodes are 26. there. Yes. So
1: we're just going to pick up where they left off and just yep. title this episode number 27. Yeah. If you want to listen to the previous 26 Uh, we'll find a place to link to them on the website. So if you go to the show notes here, we'll link back to those. Um, And uh, yeah, 27 Moving Forward is here on the Mormon Marriages podcast, and we're really excited about it. Great. Um, Should we just dive right in? No, before we dive in, why don't you tell us what you got going on in in life?
2: Sure. So let's see, in September, I'm actually going to be coming and doing a two-day women's art of desire workshop, which has just recently been planned. So that should be on my website soon, and that's going to be in the holiday uh, area. And then in October, I'm going to be in Jackson Hole doing a five-day couples retreat. I did this last fall, but we're doing it again because it was such a big hit. So there'll be a two-day uh, relationship course and then three days sexuality, and you can do all five days or you can do one or the other.
0: That and is then
2: awesome. the last thing is that we're going to be going to France for an um, 11-day couples uh, tour uh, wow. through paris and provence and while i teach um content to couples and it's only 14 couples we did this already in italy last um february it was such a huge success it was amazing and it was yeah really friends who went they loved it yeah yeah so it was really cool to watch these couples transform and also impact each other positively and to be able to focus on your relationship without kids and to be in this beautiful area while you're kind of confronting some hard things at the same time uh just was really remarkable so that's coming in may of 2020
1: sweet so -hmm. if you're listening to this close to the publication date and you want to attend any of those events just go to the the mormon marriages website for this episode it'll be the ask a mormon sex therapist episode 27 and we'll list links to all of those events and we have one other special thing coming up too don't we
2: Yes. Great. And so we're going to do, while I'm in Utah, we are going to do a live Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist podcast, um, also in the holiday area probably. And um, if people sign up for the Gottman event that is happening um, on Wednesday, September... September 18th. 18th. 18th, Thank you. Uh (laughs) Uh, And use my link, um, which we can put on the show notes here. You can, and also on my website, you can actually come to the Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist recording free of charge. So, Boom. and it will also be available for others who would like to come and be in on that. Yeah, um, if you can't
1: make it to the Gottman event, there'll still be. We'll we'll provide all that information on this page of how you can make it to the um, Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist live.
2: Yeah, be so That'll fun. Be fun. Yeah,
1: I'm really excited about that.
2: Yeah, it's gonna be great. I'm glad so, you're
1: excited about it. Yeah. Um, all right, should we dive in with a for our first question ever together?
2: Yes, let's do it.
0: Okay, and take it away. I'm gonna read this one.
1: Make sure you get this really close.
0: Okay. It says, before my husband and I got married, I always heard the comment he's going to want sex all the time. Well, here we are a couple years in, and I feel I want to initiate sex way more than my husband does. It doesn't matter how many times I bring up my concerns, nothing changes. Recently, we decided to start trying to start a family, and my husband has had a hard time ejaculating. It has been insanely hard to not take it personally. My question is, what is the best way for me to navigate my negative experiences with my sexual relationship with my husband and move forward in a
2: positive light? Okay, good. So first, I would say I think this is a much more common problem than we think, because all the cultural stereotyping is that men are sex machines, and women... At least good women have no interest in sex, and so that's the sort of you know stereotypical understanding but a lot of sex experts um, who work in the non LDS community say that their experience is that this is very balanced between couples that men are low desire as much as women are low desire. That has not been as much my experience. If I had just to say the couples that come to me and the questions that I get, it is disproportionately men with higher desire. But I think that has a lot to do with how we've enculturated men and women around sexuality and intimacy and what's acceptable and so on. And so that might be part of the reason why it's disproportionate. But even though it is disproportionate, that's not to say that there isn't a you know a, a significant percentage of couples in the Um, you know, that are LDS that have this experience of that the woman is the higher desire person and both feel often that something's wrong with them, that this is the case. Either the woman feels there's something wrong with her that she wants sex all the time uh, and her husband doesn't and or the husband feels like there's something wrong with him. So, I mean, I think my advice on this question is that it is trying to have a conversation and it sounds like you have brought this up some, but I would stay a little more insistent on trying to understand what's going on. And I think this is hard for both people in this conversation, not just for the husband answering, but also for the wife asking because the issues of oneself are on the line Mm -hmm. for both people. So, as, as the questioner is saying, it's very hard to not take this personally. Yeah. And can I really steady myself to hear the answer or to push for the answer or to understand whatever answer comes my way? Because maybe it's going to feel despairing for me, like that this is not going to change. Maybe it's going to feel invalidating of my desirability. Um, Maybe there's things to understand about my husband that I can't, tolerate knowing. And so often couples collude in not addressing these problems Mm -hmm. directly because they're afraid of the answers. And so there is a kind of resentful collusion in silence or in not addressing it directly. So I think if you really want to address this and face it for the woman, I would say, particularly because you may be in more pain around this than he is, Um, or because it's distressing you more possibly, uh, you may need to really steady yourself and stay on it, not to persecute him, but to say, this is a real question for me. It's a real issue. And I want it to be better because I Mm -hmm. want to have a good sexual relationship. I want to be wanted. I want um, things to be better between us. So, and I think if if he's mapping and seeing that you are interested in understanding it and that you're going to stay engaged in that pursuit Mm -hmm. solving right not not to persecute him but to solve something or to address it you know it'd be it's going to maybe be still difficult but um important for him to try and come forward with what's going on on his side um and i think for a lot of men again the issue of dealing with one's sense of self is on the line because what is the matter with me that i don't feel comfortable having intercourse or what is the matter with me that i don't desire my wife or that it's hard i may desire sex but not desire my partner right mm. or mm-hmm. or i may not desire sex you know and maybe i'm right. supposed to and what's the matter with me right and the thing is that there's always something to understand about why people are in these conflicts. There's always ways to move forward and to make sense of what's happening. And sometimes because we're so afraid of the answers or we're afraid to grow or we're, we're kind of hoping we can keep the marriage where it's kind of low engagement or low intimacy because that's more comfortable for us, we will avoid really addressing what's happening but when you take a look at what's happening, you know it 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 allows you then to start addressing or mm-hmm. solving. I think, you know, there there is a range of things that could be going on based on some of my clinical experience. There's, you know, um, Esther Perel talks about this love lust split that mm-hmm. happens in many couples and. <clears throat> That many people, and I'll put it in the frame of men right now because we're talking about a low desire man, will kind of think, you know, I love my wife and I like to care for her and, you know, bring my best to her and care for the children. or whatever, But I don't want or feel comfortable engaging my sexuality because that's linked to, one, to a perception of selfishness. And this can be true for women too. That somehow, if I'm going to really lust, I have to move out of the frame of caretaking the other person. And that's counter to my notion of what it means to love someone. Yeah. Because those of us who've grown up that the idea that love is to caretake a needy parent or a needy partner will have a harder time often eroticizing our partner. Yeah. Because in couples where there's high eroticism, there is a kind of paradoxical, uh, perhaps, sense that you love them, but you don't caretake them, uh, that they sort of operate independently from you. That's what allows you to, to lust after them. Now, I you know I'm using the word lust, which I think is supercharged sometimes culturally, because mm-hmm. when I was growing up in young women's, I learned that love was about you know, all the good things, care, and concern, and lust was about all the bad things, you know, selfish, uh, embodied desire. Where the way I think about lust, what it actually means is embodied desire. Um, And so, of course, I'm always against any kind of human contact that's destructive or so directly self centered that you will hurt somebody else for your own pleasure. That's always wrong, Mm -hmm. right? But lust, in the true sense of the word, is embodied desire. And in marriage, people want embodied desire, they want to know they're wanted. Right, they may not want to want their spouse, but they want to know they're desired.
0: Definitely, the
2: validation of ourselves, the validation of our our, our worthiness, and so. Um, but I think that to want somebody in an embodied way, to be free, to have pleasure in their presence, is counter to how many of us feel it is accept- is acceptable to be mm-hmm. with our beloved, and this is true for women as well. So that's sometimes what's happening for men who have who really caretake their wives. They may have a harder time eroticizing them. They may also feel a sense of being emasculated in the marriage. Um, and that can be because of a demanding, harsh partner. I mean, I've worked with couples where the wife is kind of emasculating. Uh mm-hmm. you know, she's constantly mm-hmm. like basically wants to take her husband down a few notches as a way of trying to feel her better. And so there's high anxiety in the bedroom and he would rather be sexual on his own or shut sexuality down altogether. Um that's but that's not always the case, obviously. And sometimes yeah. when women feel constantly deprived and this can be true for men in the other direction, but constantly feel that they're not wanted, not being pursued. They can get needier and maybe more critical as a way of trying to cope with that feeling. So it, it's not necessarily that it starts with a woman who's, you know, um, emasculating. Um, I think another factor that's sometimes at play is that you don't want to be kind and generous towards Mm. your partner. And I don't think we think like that. We think, Oh, everybody's well-intentioned in marriage. We're just miscommunicating. And that's a common idea. But I think we sometimes don't pay due attention to how much um, aggression and anger and contempt can exist within marriage, right Mm. alongside love. Right. Um, Right. And that sometimes in our intimate interactions, we, we, don't want to give our spouse the satisfaction of feeling desired and wanted. And that's often true when we're unhappy in the marriage, but it also can be true if we've grown up in families where we felt, um, you you know, where you had a very harsh parent or a very harsh uh, environment where there was no room for you to exist and thrive. It's often hard to want to participate with your spouse in a way where they get to thrive. And mm-hmm. so there is a kind of withholding that men and women can do in partnership. And, you know, we like the idea that men are sex machines and they'll, they'll just have sex with anything <laughs> and anyone. Right? And first of all, I think this is very unfair to men. I just don't uh-huh. think it's true. Yeah. And, it's unfair to
1: women in a lot of ways too. Yeah,
2: that's yeah. right. And it's not fair to women because it makes it look like I'm not into you. I just, you're the only legitimate place I can have right. sex.
1: And it often turns sex into a duty
2: that's right absolutely as soon as you say that men need sex it turns it first of all it it makes it so that men feel like they're broken if they don't want it as opposed to all the meanings that are involved in how we have sex and when we have sex and why we desire it but also it makes it so that women are now enrolled in a job and that will kill desire very quickly
1: speaking of meaning one of the one of the lines that's popped out to me as i have read this question a couple of times is it doesn't matter how many times I bring up my concerns, nothing changes. Mm -hmm. So I feel like um, this wife is pretty uh, kind of attached to the idea that either she shouldn't be the low desire or the high desire partner, or that there's Mm -hmm. something wrong with her husband, that he's he's not initiating, I don't know what her expectation is, if it's more than her or the equal Mm -hmm. amount as her, but Mm -hmm. I, I think she's dissatisfied with the role of being the initiator.
2: Yeah, and right. So it could be, as you're saying, Nate, that maybe it's just that she's the higher desire person, she's going to initiate more. And and is it just that she feels that that's wrong, when it's just, you know, that every couple is going to have somebody who tends to be more interested in sex than the other at any given time?
1: Do you ever have a couple that initiates 50-50? Like exactly... He, the I mean the,
2: if there is partners, a couple they aren't talking to me about it you know what I saying? <laughs> yeah
1: <Right. laughs> I feel like every couple regardless of how much you desire sex has a higher desire and a low desire partner even if they both even if they were both in separate relationships both might be high desire Yeah
2: I think that's probably true that you know and I think that what I would say is that it's also the case that in any given you know many couples where there's a lot of balance in desire there's still going to be on any given night, one is higher desire than the other person, or through a period of time, one might be more interested than the other person, and that it can shift throughout the course of the marriage or out totally. through the course Absolutely. of the night, even. Like some people start out higher desire, then their spouse does something annoying, and then they become suddenly the lower desire. You know, so no, <laughs> so it's a very fluid, we tend to put it in sort of like personality trait form when really it's a very fluid, it's a dynamic between a couple. Totally. So I think to your question, is this a woman who's just uncomfortable with the f- idea that she might be the one who's the higher desire one? And, and that is absolutely the case, I think, for some couples. In this particular case, it sounds like you know, he, it's, it's, a more, it's more dysfunction than that because right. he's having a hard time ejaculating inside or he's having a hard time wanting to have intercourse at all. It's not just, hey, he gets in the mood after she initiates some things and then he's, she's really got a partner. Right. It feels like she's saying, I don't ever fully have a partner and it's heartbreaking for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So it was funny reading this question because it was the first time I'd read it and I felt like I could have been, <laughs> been asking this question. Mm-hmm. Like when we first got married, this was the mindset that I had that, right. that I was going to have to beat him off with a stick kind of a thing. Right. And when that wasn't the case, I thought there was something wrong with me. And so I think it can be an emotionally charged idea because of the culture that we come from. So how can one approach the conversation with their spouse without the emotions? Does that make sense? I feel like sometimes if you have that high emotion, you filter everything that they're saying through those emotions. Right. So how could we approach it?
2: So I think that's, you know, it's a good question. And I think it's really has a lot to do with how to say it, you have to put, you have to sacrifice your sense of self to solving the problem. Yeah, <laughs> it's really a way to say it. And when yeah. we talk about lose yourself to find yourself, this idea, mm-hmm. it gets often interpreted in the martyr frame, you mm-hmm. know, basically lay down, let everybody trample you and someday you'll get a reward in the next life. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how I think of that. I think of it as you have to sacrifice your ego to be able to be a good partner, to solve things as partners, to be good parents, because how you feel about yourself needs to be secondary to what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And the younger we are, the harder that is. And if we keep pushing ourselves in the right way, the older we get, the more we can handle when our teenager mm-hmm. tells us we're the worst parent ever. Right? <laughs> and, yeah. and you can kind of handle that and really look at how am I doing as a parent and what do I need to do better? Um, But so to this question, you know, I think that um, it means saying like this may not feel good or this may feel invalidating to me, but it matters more that we as a couple solve this. And the only way we're going to solve it is if we get the reality onto the table and then we can both take a look at it and see what's actually happening.
0: So kind of taking an objective view of
2: it. Yeah, exactly.
0: An outsider's point of view.
2: Right. Because, you know, for example, some people, some women are the higher desire person because they're just kind of higher desire in life or they're the ones who tend to be more the ones who are initiating and creating and doing and their spouse is more passive and background and it plays out in the sexual realm, but nothing's going wrong. It's just kind of how they do life or how they do engagement around anything. And so if it's getting all translated into, I'm somehow unacceptable to my spouse, it becomes unable to really just see it for what it is Um, and how does, what does this mean for each of us? Um, And so I think that, yeah, the more you can say what is happening, is it about that you don't like having sex with me? Is it there's something specific to sex? Is it something about initiating? Is it how you get turned on? Is it what, how do you make sense of it? Mm. And I'm going to calm myself down Mm. while I, listen for an answer.
1: The things you were just listing off reminded me a lot of um, Emily Nagoski's dual, Mm. she calls it like the dual control model of arousal where you have like a, you have stimulus, brakes and accelerators. So you have the stimulus that gets you in the mood for sex. That's right. And then you have the brakes that will take you out of the mood. And a lot of people think that if you want to have more sex, the goal is just to hit the gas harder. That's right. In reality, if you take your foot off the brakes, you're going to be (laughs) way more prone. So maybe like one of the things, I mean, maybe they just, in this specific situation, or anybody who's listening, maybe they haven't identified what their emotional or, or uh, in, internal, intrinsic or extrinsic brakes are. That's right. Maybe they've got their foot on the brakes the whole time, and that's why they're having a hard time enjoying.
2: That's right. And I think what often happens in couples is when somebody's slamming the brakes on, the other person starts pushing on the accelerator yeah. because they're <laughs> afraid of, of the invalidation, right? of the invalidation of their spouse's right. anxiety, so they become higher desire. Mm -hmm. Not because they want sex so much. I mean, I'm not dissing sex at all. Right. They want the validation. Validation, yeah. And so it gets more punctuated Then the more the other person feels like they're being pressured and they, you know, the more their brakes go on. And and so oftentimes people are having a hard time both just driving together and keeping their (laughs) their feet sort of adjusted.
1: You get that weird cocktail of like one person stress is like the aphrodisiac and that's how their outlet and the other person's sex is the, is like the, or stress is the anti-aphrodisiac and it totally takes them out of the mood and then they both get stressed out because things aren't working and yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah, exactly right. So um, the other thing I was going to say about Nagoski's research is that She talks about spontaneous desire versus
1: responsive.
2: Responsive, thank you. Responsive desire. And she says that men more often report spontaneous desire, that they're just suddenly turned on. They are aroused. Their body is ahead of their psychology, essentially.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: according to the research, men and women are both responsive in their desire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that is that your, your body becomes aroused after some sexually relevant things have begun to happen. Yeah. For men, it's often faster. The sexually relevant, they see a beautiful woman, they, their wife, their wife brushes past them, whatever, and they may feel their body respond more quickly than women's bodies tend to respond. But men are responsive as well, and Definitely. they may be longer in their responsiveness than some men are, which doesn't mean they don't like sex, right, or that they don't like you. And so you can say, like, what is it? What is my spouse's arousal pattern? Yeah. What's my arousal pattern? And is there some way that we can sort of work together uh, to create something satisfying without taking it so personally?
1: definitely right. and i love how she talks about the difference between the, the two patterns how one like in the way that we often think that ar- arousal or that that sex works is you experience a desire and then you get aroused and then you have a climax and then That's you have right. a resolution but the the opposite is t- often true for people yes. is they experience the arousal first and then they're like the hey this of- feels good now i actually want it
2: Yeah, exactly right yeah. and that oftentimes arousal happens and desire never happens because, and this is especially true for women, because women are particularly picky about where they engage sexually, but can also be true for men, of course, which is, my body may be aroused, I don't want this sexual activity. Mm -hmm. Women or men, people have talked about in abusive situations that they saw their body respond, which was very confusing, because did that mean that they wanted this horrible thing that was happening to them? yep and you you it's autonomic physiological yeah she calls that
1: uh non-concoordinates What is it sexual non concordance or something like that how your body can be responding but your brain isn't saying yes
2: that's right and just because
1: you you know you're physiologically responding to a touch or some sort of scenario doesn't mean that you want sex
2: that's right exactly so and and so then to this question you know this may be a man who certainly can get aroused. I don't know because I don't know the specifics. He may yeah. certainly be able to get aroused. He may have physiological responses, but why or when or where does he want sex um, or want to be sexual? That's where all the meaning lies. What's right. happening that he doesn't want to with his partner? If he never wants to, what's happening, right? Because... Maybe he's never given himself permission. Maybe he was sexually abused. Uh, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's not heterosexual, right? So maybe he's dealing with um, homosexual desire and is trying to manage that. So I don't know what is happening for this particular person, but I right. think that's where you can start to understand.
0: Mm-hmm. I also want to speak to the part where she said they just recently decided to try and start a family. Yeah, and this is something I've heard just in conversations with friends. Yes, That when they first start trying to have a family, that fear yes. and the anxiety yep. around absolutely. that can create some performance issues yes. and exactly. to struggle with ej-
2: ejaculation. And that, yep. Absolutely. That's I excellent. Like I'm really glad you're bringing that up. That's a really good point. I, that's absolutely true. The anxieties that you've just listed about having a baby, or especially if there's some timing issues, like, you know, I'm ovulating, you've got to produce... <laughs>
1: We
2: don't know what that's like at all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just the anxiety about, like, the lack of control that's inherent to becoming a parent, this, right down to the getting pregnant part, can really wreak havoc on our sense of spontaneity and our sense of yeah. self and our sense of, you know, just because anxiety oh. interferes with orgasm. Right. Anxiety interferes with arousal, especially high levels of anxiety. So these can all be factors at play for sure.
1: Jennifer, we were inspired to choose this question today cuz we literally <laughs> had this conversation this morning. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we like we just barely hit and we can be transparent on this podcast everybody yeah. listens. Yeah. Um so she just got her IUD out. Uh-huh. And Fighting. we're like, all right, we want to start trying to have a family and this week she's like I'm ovulating. It's time. Like <laughs> we're doing it every day. And I'm like <gasps> right sex on yeah. demand is a little bit different than it's sex very because, different, right yeah. it's
2: very different and that's where like I've men get challenged against this you're supposed to be a machine you're still yeah. supposed to produce and it's just not how we're put together as you know right. So, so. right
1: so just know you're not alone person who asked this question <laughs> we're in it together <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: what, right, are you yeah. ready for the next question
2: yes please
1: awesome okay so this is from a gentleman he said, I struggle with premature ejaculation for years. Kegels do nothing. Trying to calm down doesn't really work very well, but maybe I haven't done that right. And then occasionally I'll try having an orgasm before, a couple hours before we have sex, but that isn't ideal, um, especially for spontaneous stuff. So what do I do? Thoughts on delay spray or taking an SSRI? Mm-hmm. Talk to me.
2: Okay, good. So it's a good question. And um, I think, first of all, a lot of times people do try to do things to like the delay spray trying to, Mm -hmm. or uh, SSRI, they're trying to limit um, sensation and sexual arousal or wear two condoms. And while I can appreciate the intention around that is that you, you, you know, you're thinking about death and murder and things like that during sex. <laughs> <laughs>
1: in
2: <laughs> Bring your arousal level down and I can understand the thinking about it, but I think that more what the goal is, is wanting to increase and distribute pleasure, not, and not have it be so phallic focused, so mm-hmm. that your body can incorporate and sort of integrate more pleasure. Um, and you get, so, Um, Ian Kerner, in one of his books, talks about um, a a technique he calls please squeeze and ease. And so what you can do to increase your ability to stay in that pre-orgasmic period, right, and extend that pre-orgasmic period. The arousal period, maybe. The arousal period, right, um, is that you want to... um, and this is true for women too, what I'm going to say, but basically you want to come right up against your orgasm threshold without going over it. Then, And I'll give some specifics here in a second, but go up to that orgasm threshold without going over it and then drop back, work your way back up to that orgasm threshold, drop back. And the more you do that, basically you're extending your pre-orgasmic period or your arousal period. And also this can increase the intensity of orgasm that you'll have when you extend that period. This is what so much of tantric sex is about is extending the period of arousal before you have orgasm.
1: Yeah. Flirting with the the point of no return without crossing.
2: That's right. That's right. So what you might do in your partnership and and, um, I'll, I'll come to another point in a second, but what you might do in your partnership is that you're, um going to if you're the wife in this you can bring your spouse up to that just to their almost to that orgasmic inevitability point and right when you get there that you you drop back um and what you do is at this point squeeze so you can be stimulating manually or orally and then you want to squeeze but with a thumb and forefinger Particularly putting pressure on the urethra, which is this you know on the underside mm-hmm. of the penis, mm-hmm. and that pushes some of the blood out of the penis and and takes the um the arousal level down and then once you have squeezed then and the the arousal levels come down, then you go down to being at ease and at this point, you want to move away from the phallus entirely and be touching his the rest of his body, or he may want to be pleasuring you during this period. And this could be like 60 seconds of time, I would say, you know, at least 45 seconds of time or longer. You don't want to go so that you're like losing all arousal, but mm. want to come down from that intensity, maybe offering pleasure to the wife in the situation. And then you repeat that. You work your way back up to orgasmic inevitability right before it, drop back. And the more you do this, like the more you extend both your capacity physiologically and also your confidence. Because what's so often happening for people, and maybe next time we'll take up the question for women and not being able to orgasm because it's highly related to this, is that there's so much anxiety about so much performance anxiety Mm -hmm. and especially for men who are supposed to be sex machines right in the way we talk Mm -hmm. about it there's so much anxiety about that you're supposed to be giving your wife pleasure you're supposed to be able to you know handle this and oh my gosh i can't and last time i had an orgasm before i wanted to And what if i do it again and all those kinds of thoughts are actually making it more likely to happen uh more likely for premature ejaculation and then for some men who get over the anxiety of the premature ejaculation, then they have a very difficult time orgasming at all because it's, it's an anxiety response. And so their anxiety stays high because now they're supposed to orgasm and they can't so and
0: swung to the other
2: end, of the to the, swings sure. to the other side. Exactly. So, um, I think again, as I talk about a lot, and this is, you know, so much of the kind of work I do with couples is the issues of yourself are very much at play um, in this as well, because whether you're a woman who's never had an orgasm or you're a man who's trying not to have an orgasm too early, this sense of being sufficient is often playing sort of more central to the interaction with your spouse than the pursuit of pleasure and just being with one another and figuring this out as a couple. And so because the issues of your own sense of self are so dominant, it makes it hard to really be with your partner, makes it hard to just tolerate the somewhat unpredictability of our bodies. Some days you're going to be more anxious than other days. And some days you're going to, body's not going to do things the way you want to. And can you kind of handle that as a couple and still offer some grace to yourself and to one another while you work and play together at these things, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's that capacity to partner that's often interfering with normal sexual dysfunction. I mean, I don't know if dysfunction is the right word, normal sexual disappointments. <laughs> right. That's a good word. Our body yeah. not doing yeah. the things that we want when we want is a normal part of life and a normal part of sexual relationships. But I think the couples that struggle more take it very personally. Uh, you know, take it out on their spouse, take it out on themselves, have a hard time, again, you know, working together towards a solution, Uh, not taking things so personally, figuring out what is going on. Or so that is to say, if you're going to do the please squeeze at ease pattern, then it means tolerating. Sometimes you're going to go over the edge and you're going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might go to eat at ease so much you can't get re-engaged in please. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's just going to be normal. And it, couples that do well tolerate that without too much tyranny inside their own heads or between themselves.
0: And maybe approach it as a skill that takes practice versus that's right. something that's just supposed yeah.
1: to
2: happen naturally. The that first step absolutely. of
1: being really good at something is sucking at something.
2: That's exactly right. <laughs> and exactly, and the courageous people they tolerate sucking at something yeah. while they get good at it. And you know, for many of us, getting married, starting, you know, having sex for the first time, uh, often when you first get married then there's this high demand often that we should somehow know how to do this. And it's like, are you kidding? Like, why mm-hmm. would you know how? No. And you're in a culture that's prepared you very little for it. And so. Uh, Which is
1: why it, we exist, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. <exactly. laughs> so that's right. So it's like, that's why you have, you got about 70 questions. It's true. <laughs> and, right. Because yeah, we have so a much. lot
1: of questions submitted
2: yeah so just you know a lot that we just don't know and then we can be really hard on ourselves and so offering ourselves that that grace to figure it out and to play at it and to tolerate the inevitable disappointments or idiosyncrasies or uh even what sometimes couples talk a lot about is the awkwardness Mm -hmm. that's just normal you know Whatever you try something that you've never done before it's going to feel awkward at first it's going to feel anxiety evoking at first and are you a couple that can make room for that between you Um, can you make room for it in yourself so I just think it's a fundamental part of of all development and sexual Mm -hmm. development
1: tolerating anxiety in favor of growth I think I've heard you say that several times that's right that's a
2: schnarch idea but that's exactly right yep Mm -hmm. exactly yes so important
1: Awesome. Well, that's Good. two great answers to two great questions. Yeah. I feel like this is a great way to kick off our first episode together. Yeah.
2: So fun doing this with you guys. And you have, you know, you clearly have very thoughtful responses because you're doing a lot of this kind of work yourselves. So it's great. Oh, thank
1: you. Yeah. Thanks. Good. Go team.
2: Yeah. <laughs> awesome.
1: Well, we are excited to have you back on in a future episode. We'll try and do these fairly regularly. And um, I hope that those of you who might be coming from rational faiths, hang around and check out some of our other podcast episodes as well because yes. um, we we will be, these are all relationship oriented episodes and we try and provide amazing stories and tools and resources for you to um, to improve your marriage, not just, I mean, this these episodes are the sexual aspect, but we cover all sorts of other aspects of your marriage as well. So hopefully this becomes a, a, a regular listen in your podcast feed. Great. Thanks for your time, Jennifer.
2: Thank you
0: thank you for joining us for our very first ask, ask a mormon, mormon sex therapist. therapist we didn't plan that, that no, was actually, really great. we're so in sync good job honey so um just as a reminder these are bonus episodes we're so excited to have them and um we will also have regular our episodes. regular episodes yeah. um on the regular schedule so uh, we are publishing this one today and there is another one your normal episode coming to you on thursday with the Franks so
1: definitely I'm excited yep.
0: we're excited to make this a regular segment on our show we hope you enjoyed it give us your feedback
1: let us know on the podcast review
0: and ask Jennifer a question online once again that's mormonmarriages.com slash ask
1: a-s-k all
0: right see you next time
1: bye